All right, good to see everybody. If you're visiting, I'm very glad that you're here. We're going to be in Exodus chapter 7 this morning. So can you please open up there if you're, if you're very new and you don't uh, know your way around the Bible. It's the second book in the Bible. Uh, this has been our series that we're going through as we see, we see God uh, uh, before he, he took his people Israel into the land that became known as Israel, but that was always titled Canaan, that promised land. Before he got them there, he first allowed them to be enslaved by their great numbers, uh, uh, more than a million of them, including women and children, enslaved there in Egypt under the superpower, the greatest nation and the greatest social power that had ever been known uh, up to its day. They were enslaved by them, and 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 what what we what we are seeing as we look behind the the, the scenes here, as we look uh, underneath the surface, what God wants us to realize in this in this account of of Israel being rescued, of of Egypt being weakened, is the fact that God here, according to Exodus chapter twelve, is judging the gods of the Egyptians. As God takes them out of the land in, in Exodus 12, he recaps what is occurring by saying that in this way, God judged the Egyptians' gods. We've said week by week that this is not primarily a fight between Israel and Egypt. This is not primarily a fight between Moses and Pharaoh. This is primarily a fight, and it really is no fight at all. It's just a, it's just a televised Beating, I have exegetical reason for saying that. I'll show you in a second. This is just a televised beating where Yahweh gets in the ring where all of the false gods of Egypt have been enslaving his people and he pummels them to a bloody pulp. That's what happens. When we, read, when we recount the 10 uh, occurrences by which God weakens the gods of Egypt, what are they called? Now, usually we call them the 10... The ten plagues, thank you. A little bit of interaction here would be, would be great. Yeah, the, the ten plagues is what we usually call them, but in fact, that, that's not the best rendering of, of the word. Even though some of them are plagues in the sense that they're sicknesses or they're boils or things like that, the word for plagues here is, is uh, actually in the Hebrew a, a striking. It's to land a blow. It's to, it's to punch a fist through the face of another. It's a, it's a striking. And so, so what we have here in the, in the ten plagues is really the, the ten strikes of Yahweh against the gods of the Egyptians to weaken their hold and to diminish their so-called glory. We have ourselves in Exodus chapter 7 and verse 14 today, and we will be reading until the uh, uh, verse 15 of chapter 8. It is the, the book of Colossians which, which calls the false gods or rather the, de the demons in this world, the rulers and authorities that God seeks to strip of power and he has done so in the cross. It's Ephesians 6 verse 12 which calls these demons the rulers, the authorities, the cosmic powers over this present darkness, the spiritual forces of evil in, in the heavenly places. Now, while we might leave the full exegesis for what that looks like for another day, we're seeing today that the way these rulers and cosmic forces and demonic powers and authorities manifested themselves in Egypt was through their culture, through their religion, and through their philosophy. Let's read how God lands these first two strikes to the heads of the Egyptian gods. Verse 17, oh, sorry, verse 14 of chapter 7. Hear now the word of the one true living God. And then Yahweh said to Moses, Pharaoh's heart is hardened. He refused to let the people go. Go to Pharaoh in the morning as he is going out to the water and stand on the bank of the Nile to meet him. And take in your hand the staff that turned into a serpent. 
And you shall say to him, the Lord, the God of the Hebrews sent me to you saying, let my people go that they may serve me in the wilderness. But so far you have not obeyed. Thus says the Lord, by this you shall know that I am the Lord Yahweh. Behold, with this staff that is in my hand, I will strike the water that is in the Nile and it shall turn to blood. The fish in the Nile shall die. The Nile will stink, and the Egyptians will grow weary of drinking water from the Nile. And Yahweh said to Moses, say to Aaron, take your staff and stretch out your hand over the waters of, the, of Egypt, over their rivers, their canals, and their ponds, and all the pools of water, so that they may become blood. And there, they shall, uh, and there shall be blood throughout all the land of Egypt, even in vessels of stone and of wood. Verse 20. Moses and Aaron did as the Lord commanded. In the sight of Pharaoh and in the sight of his servants, he lifted up the staff and struck the water in the Nile, and all the water in the Nile turned into blood. And the fish in the Nile died, and the Nile stank. So the Egyptians could not drink water from the Nile. There was blood throughout all the land of Egypt. But the magicians of Egypt did the same by their secret arts. So Pharaoh's heart hardened And he did not listen to them, as the Lord had said. Verse 23, Pharaoh turned and went into his house, and he did not take even this to heart. And the Egyptians dug along the Nile for water to drink, for they could not drink the water of the Nile. Seven full days passed after Yahweh had struck the Nile. Chapter 8, and then Yahweh said to Moses, Go into Pharaoh and say to him, Thus says the Lord Yahweh, Let my people go that they may serve me. But if you refuse to let them go, behold, I will plague all your country with frogs. This one seems a little bit funnier as you read it, less epic seeming. Frogs. Okay, we were expecting something a bit more intimidating, but we'll look at the significance of this soon. Verse 3, the Nile shall swarm with frogs and shall come up into your house and into your bedroom and onto your bed and into the houses of your servants and your people and into the ovens and your kneading bowls. The frogs shall come upon you and your people and on all your servants. And Yahweh said to Moses, say to Aaron, stretch out your hand with your staff over the rivers, over the canals, and over the pools, and make frogs come up on the land of Egypt. So Aaron stretched out his hand over the waters of Egypt, and the frogs came up and covered the land of Egypt. But the magicians did the same by their secret arts and made frogs come up on the land of Egypt. Last few verses here. Verse 8. Then Pharaoh called Moses and Aaron and said, plead with me. Uh, Sorry, plead with the Lord to take away the frogs from me and from my people, and I will let the people go to sacrifice to the Lord. Moses said to Pharaoh, be pleased to command me when I am to plead for you and your servants and for your people, that the frogs may be cut off from you and your houses and be left only into the Nile. And he said, tomorrow, Moses said, be it as you say, so that you may know that there is no one like the Lord our God. The frogs shall go away from you and your houses and your servants and your people. They shall be left only in the Nile. So Moses and Aaron went out from Pharaoh, and Moses cried to the Lord about the frogs as he had agreed with Pharaoh, and the Lord did according to the word of Moses. The frogs died out in the houses, the courtyards and the fields, and they gathered them together in heaps 
and the land stank. When Pharaoh saw that there was a respite, he hardened his heart and would not listen to them as the Lord had said. May God bless his own reading in our midst this morning. We see here the first two plagues that strike our, our plagues uh, 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 with, reverent, with reference to the Nile. The, the, the plagues or the strikings that God brings against Egypt happen in, in really three, three collections. The first two are about the Nile. The, last, uh, the, 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 the second lot of four refer to the, the land. And then the last four refer in some way to their gods of the sky. This was the, the whole of the Egyptian philosophy and economy was the Nile, the land, and the sky. And these first two strike at the very heart of the gods of the Nile. Here's Pharaoh, and he's going out in the morning to bathe, just as his, just as his, you see the irony all through the story. He's going out to the Nile to bathe, just as his daughter had done when she found Moses. She found Moses and took him in as a baby and raised him, and now here again is Pharaoh, uh, a member of his household, meeting Moses in the bank of the Nile, but this time it's for judgment. This time the blood of the, 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 sorry, the Nile is not running red with the blood of the Hebrew boys. Now, now the Nile is going to run red with the blood of judgment against the Pharaoh that mur- murdered them all. Here's, here's Pharaoh, and, and it's likely that he's bathing because he's rich and privileged enough to be able to sort of afford that leisure. It wasn't common practice in Egypt to bath in the Nile, but he was the Pharaoh, and so the royals did that. Maybe he was going out because a, a frequent practice in Egyptian worship was to go and, 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 and uh, uh, take, sometimes they would take it to the Nile, sometimes they would do it in the temples. They would take up their stone and wood idols, place them somewhere, and wash them in the water of the Nile as an act act of worship. Maybe he's going out to sing the hymns and to watch the washing of the idols. But here we see why God focuses his first striking, his first right hook against the, the Nile. Firstly, because as we, we recapped a few weeks ago, the Egyptians believed the, the Nile to, to be a god. It was this divine presence that had manifested itself on earth, and it is still to this day one of the most fertile, amazing sections on the face of the planet because of the the river systems that make up the Nile. They worshipped it as a god. They had uh, the gods Kinum, Anuket, and Satet were the guardians of the Nile. They protected it. Let's see how good of a job they do at that today. They're protecting the Nile. And then you have the gods Nu and Osiris. And they, uh, they really, in some way or another, give the life to the Nile. But they are the source of the Nile. But, but the main god that they worshipped as uh, uh, in connection to the Nile was Hapi, H-A-P-I. Hapi, as we, we said a, a while ago, he was in fact androgynous. He was, he was neither fully male nor female. He was intersex. As the, as the male portion of his gender identity, he would fertilize the ground and touching his, his she part of his preferred pronouns, he would fertilize the ground with the, with the water and so the ground around the Nile would be fertile and giving of food. He, he was pictured, I'm, gonna, I'm just going to read what the Egyptologists tell us. He was pictured as a male with a pot belly and female breasts and stubble. Which sounds like he works for the HR department and enforces the diversity rules, right? And, and, and his, we all know this guy. You, you've met at least one of these guys. Pot belly, fake breasts, 
He, she, right? That's, that, that's, that, that, that's what's going on here in Egypt. And, and they worship him as this androgynous. This was, a, this was a power that sort of put him above the, the natural bonds of, of our single uh, 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 engendered bodies. He's this, this power that he can transcend them. And, of course, my question, I read the, I read the, the lists of their gods in, in Egyptologists' record, and I just think, why? I'm sure you ask this. Why would they worship that? What about that is attractive, that they, would, that they would give themselves over? And in their designing of these gods, they, they make them potbelly, greenish skin, fake breasts, with, 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 in fact, it was a strap-on beard. How in the world is that desirable? And, and of course, the answer is just the same as well, what leads somebody to, to dress up? What forces a man to put on a dress or to put on makeup and to shove his shirt with socks or to, with socks or to, to chop off appendages given to him by God and then walk out in a parade waving flags in the city? What, what leads men to do that? Any thinking person has to say, we don't know. <laughs> if you're asking for logical reasons, you're asking the wrong question. It is not logical reasons that lead these kind of gods to manifest themselves or people to give themselves in worship to these kinds of beings. The answer is, why do demons back then and today uh, uh, bring about such thinking and actions and worship in the world is simply because it diminishes the glory of God. Why did they do that? So that they might strike at the very heart of God's created order. Why do they do it today through the, through the, 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 the systems and the diversity departments and the, and the marches today? Why do they do that? Well, because it rebels against the knowledge of God. They try to throw off God's created order and they try with all that they can to diminish the glory of God that is in the created order. This is what humans do. This is what demons empower. And this is what cultures of sinners do. This is what cultures of sinners that are not sanctified by the, by the regenerating blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. This is what cultures do. We, we abominate and then we make sacred the abominations. We, we sin, and Romans 1 tells us God, God lengthens the leash, and we, we dive into sin further, and we, we manifest that out, and then come the thou shalt not judge laws, otherwise known as the blasphemy laws. You're not allowed to speak against this person or their identity, or, or sorry, no, we're back in Egypt at the moment. You're not allowed to speak against the, the sacred abomination that we've come around to love and worship. It becomes, as Romans 1 tells us, an excuse for sin and a celebration of sin against the knowledge of God. Cultures of sinners make sacred the abomination of God's glory. Look at verse 20. In chapter 7, verse 20, at the end here, <clears throat> it says this, that all the water in the Nile turned into blood. This is the God that God, this is the, the false God that God is stepping onto the scene to strike a blow to in his judgment. He lists what happened in verse 20, the water of the Nile uh, and all the water in the Nile turned into blood, verse 21, and the fish in the Nile died, and the Nile stank, so that the Egyptians could not drink water from the Nile. There was water throughout all the land of Egypt. There's, there's multiple layers to this judgment. First of all, the Nile turned into blood. Secondly, the fish within that Nile died. Do you know what Harpy's other name was? Uh, the Harpy, the god of the Nile, he was... Lord of the fish. 
And here his, his very essence, his own identification is now floating to the top of the, the bloody water in judgment. And of course, the Nile stank. The whole land of Egypt stank. I, I remember one time when I, I, I was working in a hospital in the sort of in the back end on, of, the, uh, of the surgical system. And, and there was at, at one part, part of my job was to take these, these bags of old blood that had gone through, gone through the, uh, the, 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 the process, you know, being sucked out of people or drained from the bottom of theater floors and all that sort of thing. And, and there was one time, I wasn't going to say this, but it's come to mind. There was one time when somebody in, in placing it through to the disposal had lost her grip and about five liters of old human blood just spat it over the floor, under the doors and over my shoes, I tell you what, that, that stank. There's, there's a kind of, if you've been there, maybe, maybe it's in hospital, maybe it's a, you've worked in a cemetery, I don't know, but, but the rotting of the human blood, that's a, that kind of highly metallic, disgusting smell, that was, that was everywhere, everywhere in the land of Egypt, truly, truly disgusting. When the true God judges a society, he judges them along the lines of their sins. When God judges a people, he judges them along the lines of their sins. He judges them, in other words, according to their idols. He judges them along with the demons and false gods that they are worshiping and bowing down to. In other words, God judges the demonic realm and all those who worship them along with them. God judges according to sin. So here, now the Nile is filled with blood, the fish are all dead, and it is smelling, it is stinking throughout the entire land. Now, we need to remind ourselves how important the Nile was to the, to the land of Egypt. One, in theology, because it was their God. Secondly, though, because it was, it was fertile, so it allowed for, uh, for farming and agriculture. That obviously leads into the fact that it was the basis of their economy, farming and agriculture and trade and, and the buying and selling of goods. That was all connected. Of, of course, also with the Nile, they relied on for transport, the, the north-south uh, traveling that uh, was able to, to, to uh, uh, allow them to trade and move things quickly. It was, of course, the, the water that they would drink. It was fresh water, and so without it, they no longer had drinking water. It was the basis of their economy in the sense that many jobs and every other industry relied on the Nile. It was also a matter of ease and convenience because with very little labor, uh, you don't find Egyptians digging wells, really. You, you simply channel or create some kind of aqueduct from the Nile. They, they had a lot of convenience and ease with, with much yield for their labor. And of course, it underpinned all of their riches and affluence. It was in every sense the lifeblood of Egypt. And when God judges a people, he judges them along the lines of their idols in a way that exposes their sins. Here's God saying, you, you worship the Nile as your lifeblood. I will turn it into blood before your very eyes. When God judges a people, he judges them according to their sins. Is also, as, as Pharaoh was standing there, on, maybe on his boat, maybe waist deep in the water himself, the water around him turns into blood in, in such a way that it's, it's not expressly said here, but I think it's intentional, in such a way to expose the murder 
the slaughter, the, the abortion, the genocide that he had, he had uh, 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 propagated against the Hebrews just back in chapter 1, when he was, he was uh, commanding the, the midwives to kill the sons on the birthing stool very, very secretly, but, but actually instead of doing that because they refused to obey, he sent in the police force, he sent in his armies, they, they took the young boys and they threw them into the Nile in, in this way of convenience, they don't have to butcher a child, they don't have to use their blood. They, they simply throw them as a sacrifice to Harpy and away they walk. And now it's as if God is reminding them of their sins. Pharaoh and all his servants, they are seeing the blood, sorry, the, the water of the Nile turn into the very blood that they spilt from those young Hebrew infants. God is judging them according to their idols and exposing their sins. And it is my thesis that God does the very same thing today. He's, he's not a God that has changed He's not a God that in, in a, this New Testament time, whatever it is, after the cross, he stops dealing with people according to their nations and their, and their societies. Of course, he still does. And he still judges people in, in such a way that is according to their idols and in a way that exposes their sins. <clears throat> For example, in our world, it is as if God looks at us and says, you worship sex and seek to normalize it in every sphere. And he makes sexual abuse and sexual assault normative. We want to throw off the norms of marriage, as if those, the, the early feminists would say that women are more than just marriage objects. There's more glory than the, than the home and the family, etc. And so now, largely in our society, women are not marriage objects, just sex objects, without husbands. The feminists taught women to despise the home and their responsibility over it. And because of the feminist movement, yes, inspired by the same demons now, we have the highest rates of female homelessness and abuse and singleness in history. Men worked to, to normalize and monetize pornography and idolize godless sex. And now God sends over generations plagues of sexual dysfunction and diseases. <clears throat> We have this, this idol of spending and consumerism throwing all of our substance, our time, our money in order to gain more and more objects of possessions and it comes back to bite us through inflation that makes the cost of living near impossible. God judges according to our idols. God, we, we, we say that we want God out of the government uh, uh, so that his laws don't oppress us and control us and then government has no restriction over it and seeks to destroy the people. It acts like a god and steals from you through rising taxes and inflation, and it dispenses rights to you only as it pleases. We saw that back in chapter 1, the slow progression of tyranny. Or we, we idolize the drugs, the medicines. We, we, we attempt at immortality to make ourselves live forever. We throw away the, the, the restraints of ethical research we, in order to trust the gods of Big Pharma. And then that unethical medical research releases a virus upon the world that cripples us all and makes trillions for Big Pharma. Men prioritize work and money and reject their family and then after them come up a generation of untrained fools who inherit their wealth and destroy everything that the fathers built. A nation or a, or a culture comes to despise masculinity and call it toxic. They rather neutered soft men and sure enough, 
History shows us that masculine hard men from another country will be pleased to march in in the form of an army and take that nation for itself. Or we have the idol of Darwinism, where we, in order to avoid the silly creation myth that the Bible gives to us, uh, uh, we, we, we embrace this, this process that makes us the evolved peak species in all of creation. And, and we're not with relation to a God, but simply our own evolution and, and power. And yet it becomes the silliest creation myth of all, now being one of the most laughable anti-scientific theories that there is. The theory that says that chaos gives lives to ordered biological beings in fact, removes all human uh, value because all you are is an evolved primate. And it, in fact, again, gives rise to chaos, the 20th, 20th century being the most bloody of all, inspired by the ideas of the survival of the fittest and might makes right. According to our idols, God judges us. According to our sins, in order to expose them, God judges societies. God will not be mocked. Humans and societies reap what we sow. If we are reaping sin into idolatry, into false gods, then we will be judged along with our false gods. They will not remain. There is only one kingdom. There's only one king. There's only one supernatural being whose kingdom and glory and worship will remain forever and ever. And it's none of the false gods, the, the fallen angels, the personic devil. It's none of those things. It is Jesus Christ. Only those who submit and trust in Jesus Christ find salvation that is lasting, find satisfaction that is true and deep and eternal. And yet, and yet the world in all of its sins are addicted like the Egyptians, addicted to the idols that have no power to save or satisfy. The inability of idols the inability of sins, the inability of ourselves to save is put on extreme display when God judges us according to our idols. Think of Happy at this moment. Think of Happy, the, the God of the Nile. He is here shown as absolutely powerless. Look at the part of the story where it says that the magicians uh, in verse 22 did the exact same thing. Verse 22. The Egyptian gods who had you know, inspired the, <coughs> the magicians and the, the priests of, of, of Pharaoh, his Pharaoh, worried by what he sees and thinking, obviously, is this proof that Moses' God, that Aaron's God is the one true God? Is, there, is he overcoming Hapi at this moment? And he turns to his magicians and, and what's their solution? It's pretty funny. Instead of saying, yeah, we've got control over this, we'll undo the Nile blood, which would have been the solution, they just take more of Pharaoh's drinking water and turn that into blood as well. Good job, magicians, I guess. I guess you showed them. Uh, so, so here's Pharaoh, his, his heart hardened because the magicians are able to replicate, at least in appearance, I would, I would believe that in fact the demons were allowed at this point the power to turn the water into true blood as God had done because it simply says the very same thing by their secret arts. And the effect here was that uh, verse, uh, halfway through verse 22, Pharaoh's heart remained hardened. He would not listen to them as the Lord had said. He turned and went into his house and he did not take even this to heart. Why? Because as much as this struck at the heart of all of Egypt and their economy, and while of course this now affects every Egyptian, 
There's not an Egyptian in the land that, that isn't aware of this issue now because even in their bowls in their homes, as they were mid-poor, blood started coming out. This was a miracle. Everybody, that is, except for Pharaoh. Like, at least about the snakes. Remember Moses' staff that turned into a cobra that gobbled up all the magicians? At least that story he could have spun. He could have lied about. He could have just not published to the people through his mainstream media. This he cannot avoid. Everybody is aware of it. But what does he do? He turns aside, goes into his home, sits in his palace, and commands his servants to go and dig up water along the canals of the, canals of the Nile in order to get him water. He's able to disassociate here. He hardens his heart against God, and he goes back into his palace. Likely, he doesn't reappear for the full time of what 20, verse 25 tells us, the full seven days that passed while the Nile was filled with coagulating thickening, rotting human blood. And then we see the plague of the frogs. Look at chapter 8. The first strike was against Hapi and the gods of the Nile, and the second one is against, again, uh, again against the Nile gods. However, more specifically, against Heket. Now, as we, we read before, we saw that the, the, the frogs swarmed. This was not simply a, a few frogs in, in every house, and they were a real darn convenience, and you'd have to clean your, your, your registration plate every time you got home because you're always hitting them like you're going country driving in Queensland and it's cane toad season. It's not like that. It's, it's worse. It is frogs, slimy little African frogs everywhere. They swarmed. I'll, I'll use the imagery of, of if you've ever, ever wondered, where are all the flies coming from? Where's the, where, where are these maggots crawling from? And then you realize that you miss bin day, and you go out and you realize that the Christmas ham leftovers are in the bottom, and as you open the bag, you simply see a volcano of maggots teeming over, and you, you gag, and you want to run, and maybe that's some of you right now. That's what it was like. Every, everything they opened is, of course, they stored uh, pots and ovens and things on the ground uh, level, and as they open them, there's just frogs teeming out there. They're everywhere. They are everywhere. Even now, it says, even Pharaoh. Now, it's in his, this is what Moses threatened him with. The frogs are going to come even upon you, Pharaoh. And later in the account, it says that in fact it was Pharaoh, his servants, the people, every house, every street, and every bed. The God of Haket is now the God under attack. And this was a woman who was pictured with a frog head, usually just pictured as a sculpture of an entire frog. This is, this is their God of Heket. And because these frogs had such an ability to multiply, she was the goddess of fertility. And so that's why God is using frogs in this judgment. But, but what is funny is that their own sins and idolatries are going to come back to haunt them. Because what happens when you make a god pictured as a frog, that frog, like in Hindu or Buddhist countries that we might be familiar with, becomes sacred and you're not allowed to kill it. Can you imagine living uh, south of the Queensland border and cockroaches became sacred because of your love of state of origin and, and you weren't allowed to kill them? Or if in Australia, cane to in Queensland rather, if cane toads became holy and you weren't allowed to take a golf swing to them. Not that I ever did, but I've heard of people doing that in their teenage and you just weren't allowed to put them in the freezer, do anything against them. You have to, here you are, surrounded by your worship. You want to worship frogs, Egypt? Here's your frogs. And what is, it's a, I doubt that none of them were killing frogs. No one's that 
pious. It, when we were in Nepal, there was uh, uh, guys were telling us about how you're not allowed to eat beef because it's sacred or whatever, but people do eat beef. And you go, well, how, why and how are you not unclean? Well, it's not that you're not allowed to eat beef, it's that you're not allowed to kill cows. But if they die and you find them, you're allowed to take them home and eat them. And, and so it is. It's just one of the common mysteries of Nepal that whenever a man is driving on his own without other people looking, cows are always driving across his way. So, and he's always coming home with some beef. I'm sure it was something like that. Uh, the, uh, I didn't stomp on that frog. I don't know how this happened. But here they are, a protected species teeming through the land. They had no problem with killing Hebrew boys. But they wouldn't kill a frog. And so here they are. They, they were afraid in Hebrews 1 that the Hebrews would, be, would become too many and overflow the land. And here they are. Their own God is now the one with that very problem. But there's irony. Because in this uh, uh, section, what we see is that he says in verse uh, 3 that the frogs will even come into your beds. Into your beds. What was the power of, of Heket? She was the goddess of fertility. They weren't totally magical back in their theology. They still knew there was some human uh, responsibility in the baby-making process. Let's just leave it at that. Heket was not just the goddess of the, of the midwives. She was. She was not just the goddess of fertility in general, but also the goddess of, of sexual relations that brought about fertility. And now she is everywhere. Do you think any of the Egyptians were being very fertile in their beds, filled to the brim with frogs? This is the irony of God. You worship this thing and this way, have fun, see how you go, making babies with frogs filling your duna mattresses. It's very ironic the way that God attacked them here, but also... She was the goddess, as we mentioned, of, of the midwives. She, she helped during the childbirth process. Do you remember that, as we mentioned before, the last time there was a fertility crisis that somebody might overtake the land in Egypt, it was the, the Hebrews. It was the Hebrews who were the fertility crisis, and Pharaoh was afraid they were making too many babies. Now, even back in chapter 1, we've seen evidence that Yahweh is much more powerful than Heket. Because the Egyptians were here having their babies as per normal. And there was the Hebrews, only, only a few of them at first, now teeming over the land of Goshen. God was able to out-multiply his people more than Heket. That's, that's a victory back from chapter 1. They've already acknowledged loss on that front. But now, now it's, it's this twist of irony where, where the midwives were weaponized against the Hebrews. Now the midwife God is weaponized against the Egyptians. Egyptians and they will not multiply. There will, there will be a, a, an abrupt drop in the fertility rates or birth rates in about nine months after this plague, we assure you. <clears throat> and so now here is God putting them to shame as he puts the gods to shame, judging a people along the lines of their idolatry. He judges them according to their sins, and he judges the demons according to their professed powers. But we've seen that God is stronger than Heket. Look at verse 7. This is how they, they try and prove, again, these, these smart magicians. This is how they try and prove that, that there's nothing to worry about. Verse 7 tells us that the magicians did the same by their secret arts, 
and made more frogs come up from the, onto the land of Egypt. There you go. Again, the solution is not by our power, we'll send them back. They just, they find the one little room that Pharaoh has no more frogs and he's in his, his mask and he's in his little bubble and he's got his gloves on and he's, he's jittering and he's, he hates these frogs and here the, here the, 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 the magicians come in and assure him they'll help them. They go, look, we're, it's okay, the gods are on our side and they make more frogs. This is such a frustrating thing for Pharaoh that the very next verse has him no longer walking away, no longer hiding. After this little display of idiocy from his magicians, he goes and calls on Moses. This again is, in verse 8, a recognition in the story that God, Yahweh, the true Lord, the God of the Israelites, of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, is more powerful than whatever gods Pharaoh had previously worshipped. Because he calls out to Moses. Look at verse 8. Pharaoh called Moses and Aaron and said, Plead with the Lord to take away the frogs from me and from my people, and I will let the people go to sacrifice to Yahweh. He's at least acknowledging a few core things in order to even ask this question. Number one, this Yahweh does exist. I can't escape that anymore. He's a real, true God. It's not just my Egyptian gods testing me. This God exists. Secondly, is that he is the one that sent these plagues, but more so, only he can solve them. The the show of the magicians gave him no confidence that he was now able to call on his gods. He now went a step further and acknowledged only Yahweh did this and only Yahweh can help this. But thirdly, he recognized that only through God's chosen mediator could he be accessed. He didn't, he didn't go off to his own cell and call out to Yahweh. He, he, knew, that, he knew that unless God had revealed, unless God had, had opened up a channel of communication, Pharaoh could not uh, be in God's good graces. So he calls on the prophet, on the priest, on the mediator Moses to go and speak to God on his behalf, knowing that anybody who goes to Yahweh through his chosen servant Moses will be heard. There, there is the inkling of faith at this point, though a faith that will never, uh, never bud or fruit into full saving faith, it is rather demonic faith. And thirdly, we see God, that God is more powerful than the Egyptian gods. The magicians couldn't actually undo it. Pharaoh turns to Yahweh for help. But thirdly, look at what Moses does in verse 9. Moses said to Pharaoh, Be pleased to command me when I am to plead for you and your servants and for your people that the frogs be cut off from you and your house and be left only in the Nile. And Pharaoh said, tomorrow. Basically, as soon as possible. Go and plead and cry and intercede so that tomorrow they are gone. What Moses is doing here is in fact cornering Pharaoh so that he has no excuses. If he had said, go away and pray for me, like some of us have received healing like this before. You go away and the prophecy that's received or the healing is that at some point in the future, uh, maybe after you visited the doctors a few times, your back pain will, will miraculously disappear. You're welcome. Uh, not much of a prophecy, more, more of, a, more of a, a fortune cookie prophecy or more of a, more of a, 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 a carnival side alley show type healing, right? If Moses had just gone away and the frogs all sort of left in a month or two and he came back, ah, see, I did it, Pharaoh could say, that was natural causes. But here is Moses saying, you give me a time, you give me a day and it will happen so that you may know that it is only the Lord doing this, that only 
only the Lord God is the true God, that there is no God like Yahweh in verse 10. There is no one like Yahweh, our God. And so the next day, the, the, the frogs, this is pretty tricky on Moses' part. Maybe it was God's idea, I don't know. Technically, the frogs left. I mean, technically, they died. They no longer have living frogs in their homes. What do they have? <laughs> millions upon millions of rotting frog carcasses. The Lord did, according, according to the word of Moses in verse 13, the frogs died out in the houses and the courtyards and the fields, but then they had to gather them and put them in enormous piles, and again, the land stank. They're in these heaped piles all around the city, and the land is stinking worse than it was with the bloody Nile. This is where, this is where God seeks not only to politely dignifiably walk the Egyptian gods to their place or, or remove the, the Israelites from their grip uh, uh, politely, he is here set on putting the false gods and all who worship them to utter shame. He wants to deride them. He wants to make them undignified. He is, he is here stomping out those gods in order to make known his own, uh, his own glory and the undignified reality of them. It, it's, a, it's as if you can see twofold. The, if people were at any point, if they did break their own laws, and, and God did, I think this is one of the main things that God was doing in this moment. He wanted the Egyptians to hate their own gods. It's one of the, the biggest graces that God can give to a society or to give, to give to a people, give to a generation, is that he dispenses to them enough of the grace called shame so that they come to despise their idols so that they come to despise what they've made of themselves, made of their, their lives, made of their behavior. God graciously gives shame so that we despise our... And like the Egyptians, maybe in the, in the dark corners, we try and stomp out all those frogs. But even that, that's a, that's a hopeless endeavor. No matter how much shame God heaps onto a people, maybe, maybe you yourself, no matter how much God has brought you to a point of despising your idols and your sins, your, your sexual behavior or your, your spending habits or your, 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 the ways that you, 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 you betray your family and all the ethics, the way that you lie against God and mankind, the way that you, the way that you sin against the law of God. If he gives you enough grace to despise that, it is not enough that you try and overcome it yourself. The answer here that we've seen is that Pharaoh goes to God's mediated servant and asks him to plead on his behalf. When God judges false gods and their demonic personalities and empowerments, either you repent of those false gods or you are judged along with them. You either repent from them and your behaviors and your sins and turn to Jesus or you die with the false gods. Here in, here in Egypt, as we bring ourselves to a close and turn our minds, how does, how does this story remind us of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ? How does this remind us? Well, of course, in the Nile that day, we need to, we to take an aerial view. You would see a, a, a fountain, a river of blood running through all of the Nile and it was, 
It was to Egypt a sign of condemnation, an inescapable sign that God is judging and you can't get away from it, an inescapable sign that you are guilty, condemned, and God is killing off the demons and all those who worship them for their sin. It's an inescapable sign of judgment. And yet, in the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ, what we have is that God sheds the blood of his own son on the cross of Calvary so that there is a river of blood that comes from his veins in order not to show a sign of condemnation, not to show a sign of hatred and wrath and punishment, but rather in Jesus taking our punishment and wrath, there might be a river that flows of this proverbial blood through the land, that people would see a sign of grace, a declaration from God that there is mercy, a promise from God that there is forgiveness for any people who come down to the river and wash themselves in the blood of Jesus Christ. The great hymn that we love to sing, there is a fountain filled with blood drawn from Emmanuel's veins and sinners plunged beneath that flood lose all their guilty stains lose all their guilty stains. And sinners plunged beneath that flood lose all their guilty stains. The dying thief rejoiced to see that fountain in his day. And there may I, though vile as he, wash all my sins away. Wash all my sins away. And there may I, though vile as he, wash all my sins away. This passage gives us a a four-step process to be done with your idols, done with your sins, and saved in the blood of Jesus Christ. It is, first of all, turn away. Come to a, 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 as Egypt and as Pharaoh, despise your idols. Hate your false gods. Hate your sins and despise them. Allow them to become a stinking fester in your soul, not just the consequences. Don't just hate sexual sin because it gets you found out. Don't just hate your consumerism because it leaves you poor. Don't just hate your selfishness because it ruins your relationships. Hate your sin. Allow your idols and your false living to be despised in your eyes because you have feared the glory of God, because you care about breaking the law and the heart of your creator who loves you so much as to give you his son. Despise, not the consequences of sin, but the true reality and the guilt of sin. Despise it. That is step number one. Step number two is like Pharaoh, acknowledge that there is only one true God. And though there be many spiritual powers, there is only one true creator God. There is only one redeeming God who has the ability to save you from your sins, to free you from your idols, and to break the bondage that you experience to sin so that you can't say no. You can't uh, leave it behind you. You feel stuck in it like, like a man in a miry bog that is, that is stuck within that quicksand of sin. And yet Jesus, Jesus is the one true God able to save you from it. Despise your sin. Acknowledge that there is only one God who can save. Thirdly, come to Yahweh through his chosen servant, who is now not Moses, but Jesus Christ of Nazareth. Come to God through his mediator, Jesus Christ, believing his promises that because he died on the cross, because he rose triumphantly from the grave, and because he now sits in heaven as the king above all kings and as the savior of all those who trust his promises, you 
can come to God through him. And he will never, ever turn away anybody who comes to God by faith in him. No one who calls on the name of the Lord Jesus will ever be put to shame as the false gods are put to shame. And fourthly, do not harden your heart. Do not harden your heart as you hear the voice of God in the gospel. Do not, as, as you've come maybe like Pharaoh and, and you've prayed or you've asked your religious friends to pray or you've, you've come to church and asked for a bit of insight and advice because you may as well try out God. And, and when there's a little bit of respite, when there's just some breathing room as, as sin and its consequences, maybe in your marriage or your job or your whatever it is, as sin seems to just take a, a step back, you dive into it all over again like Pharaoh. You, you harden your heart, you turn away because the consequences have, have, relie- have, have, have relieved for just a moment. Don't be like that. But commit yourself to the Lord Jesus Christ by faith and allegiance and, 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 and ask him to save you fully and entirely, not just so that you're free to sin again, but so that you are freed to worship God. Trust in the Lord Jesus Christ today. Let's pray. Father God, as harsh, as, as bloody, as, as graphic as the scenery is, we know that as your people, we are bound to raise our hands and raise our voices and praise you for your judgments on the false gods. As we read the story and, it, and it, 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 it's a stench in the nose to our modern sensibilities of pluralism and, and tolerance and diversity, we realize, God, there is only one creator. Every other religion, every other ido- a, a, a way of viewing the, the, the created uh, nature, every other thing is merely idolatry. And it's not, it's not intellectually neutral idolatry. God, it is a warfare against you. It is something that destroys your glory, that diminishes your power. And Lord God, we therefore sing, we thank you and we praise you that you in history put to shame those things which diminish your glory. And and in doing so, you release and you save and you redeem your people from those things which held us so fast. Father God, we thank you that in Egypt you, you humbled their gods in order to save your people, to give yourself glory. But we thank you even more that in Jesus Christ, your son that you sent to live and die and rise for us, in him we see our sins defeated. We see the, the, the principalities and powers put to open shame so that you can get glory and so that your people can be freed to worship you. I pray, Lord God, that we would see our salvation rightly that we would not simply think of it as this, as this individual, me-centric way of thinking, that, that God saved me because of my lovability, that God saved me so that I can live my best life, but rather, God, we would see all of salvation as this, this drama unfolding where you are getting for yourself glory through the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. We thank you that salvation is above us. It's out of our hands. You didn't demand it of us, but you gave it to us in a gracious gift. And Father God, I simply pray that those who today are still blinded by the God of this world, those who today are still, are still under the bondage and the strength of sin, which keeps them captive, to those who are still, even if they despise it, they, they cannot help it, they are still living in worship to these idols and these false gods that they've erected in their own lives. Would you destroy them? Would you wreck those, those false idols in their lives? Would you, would you give to the, the people, these, these poor lost souls, these sinners, would you give to them a despising, a shame about their sin so that they might turn to Jesus Christ and receive dignity, receive salvation, receive forgiveness, receive wholeness, and receive freedom from sin? 
Father God, we pray all of this to your glory because you have made it so evident in the person of Jesus, in whose name we pray. And everybody said, Amen. This sermon was preached at Hope Reformed Baptist Church in Logan, Australia. For more information about our church, visit our website at hoperb.church. If you have been blessed, please leave us a review wherever you listen. We pray this message has been used by God to grow and encourage you in your Christian walk. Thank you for listening. Soli Deo Gloria.